2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the, all the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. 
lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Well, you may have seen this news story on the 1st of January, that after 95 years, the US copyright on the first Mickey Mouse cartoon expired. What exactly means we, that means we can and can't do with that original 1928 image? I have no idea. And given the kind of money Mickey generates, you'd probably be wise to consult a lawyer. But I noticed Peter Schrank in the Times newspaper had put the image to use in a cartoon on the 2nd of January. It was a picture of the world grey and slumped on a stool with sticking plasters covering wounds, saying, we need leaders who have substance, wisdom and integrity, but where are they? And in the final frame of the cartoon, Mickey Mouse taps the world on the shoulder. 
Well, as we begin this morning, I want to ask us to consider just how good good leadership is. Just how good it is to live under good leadership. Perhaps we can think of good leadership we've experienced and the positive difference it makes. And we're thankful to those people because it is good to live under good leadership. But as we reflect on human leadership, of course, we all know it's imperfect. Even the best leaders we know make mistakes and can let us down. But the wonderful news we have this morning is that the Christian person lives every single day under the care of a leader who is perfect. One who leads us personally and who leads us corporately and who leads us unfailingly every single day. One who's full of integrity and humility, righteousness and unbreakable committed love. One who is worthy of our absolute allegiance. We're beginning this series in 2 Samuel this morning, as William said, having been in 1 Samuel last year. And 1 and 2 Samuel are two parts of one story. It's the story which charts the rise of God's king. We called the series last year in 1 Samuel, God's King Rising, and we've called this one in 2 Samuel, God's King Still Rising. And at the start of 2 Samuel, well, we meet these five striking words there, the first words of the first verse, after the death of Saul. And what then follows is the story of the transition of the kingdom of Israel from Saul to David. And at this crucial moment, the author wants us to give us solid confidence that David is God's worthy king. And so these opening chapters of 2 Samuel will paint a pen portrait of him, a sketch, if you like, of God's king and how he will be established in his kingdom. A pattern for the greater reality to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase, the Lord's anointed, comes up all through these early chapters. It's the Hebrew word which means Messiah, Christ. 1 and 2 Samuel are here to point a world in need to the leader it really needs and the Christian person to the king that we have in the Lord Jesus. If you want a key verse for this morning, I wonder if we might have chapter 3 verse 36, just a couple of pages over, chapter 3 verse 36, towards the top of page 309. Here the narrator reflects on all that David has been doing. And he writes, all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything the king did pleased all the people. The Christian person has a good leader. And so this morning we are going to look at him. And first we'll look at chapter 1 and marvel at this picture of God's worthy king. And then we'll accelerate a bit through chapters 2, 3, and 4 to see that this king is God's exalted king. So God's worthy king, chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. If we've been reading 1 Samuel, we might think of this as good news moments. The book of two halves begins and ends with a song, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and David's song in 2 Samuel chapter 22. And they both sing about God's salvation. They sing that he will bring down the proud and he will raise up the humble and establish his king. 
And Saul was the Lord's anointed, but he'd rebelled against the Lord and grown proud. And the Lord had declared he would remove the kingdom from Saul and he would give it to David. And, well, the moment has come. But actually, it's a moment that David knows nothing about. He's gone off, um, Saul has gone off to fight the Philistines and David is still in Ziklag, in Philistine territory, a fugitive from Saul. And he doesn't know what's happened in the battle. But then this visitor arrives verse 2 and on the third day behold a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head and when he came to David he fell to the ground and paid homage David said to him where do you come from and he said to him I've escaped from the camp of Israel and David said to him how did it go tell me and he answered the people fled from the battle and also many people have fallen and are dead And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. When Edward III was instructed by the powerful King Philippe VI of France to pay homage and to recognize Philippe as his lord, well, he refused for as long as he possibly could. But eventually, he had to go. Well, here is a man who brings news of the death of Saul and Jonathan, and he falls right on the ground, and he pays homage to David. He's saying to David, you are king. But David must be sure, verse 5, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And as the man speaks, well, alarm bells begin to ring for us as the reader. Just listen from verse 6. And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he'd fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. See, as we read this, here's a man that thinks he's delivering good news. And here's a man that we discover is an Amalekite. And since Exodus 17, when the Amalekites launched an unprovoked attack on Israel, they have been fierce enemies of the Lord and his people, and the Lord has pronounced judgment on them. In 1 Samuel, the Lord commissioned Saul to bring that judgment to bear, but he failed to do so. And in verse 1 of this chapter, David has just returned from striking down the Amalekites to rescue his own household from them because they'd been captured and taken away. And here is an Amalekite presenting himself as David's friend. But really, it's enemy within the camp kind of stuff. We're getting suspicious of him. And if we'd just read 1 Samuel 31, we'd realize we have good reason to be, because his story, well, it turns out to be a lie. In 1 Samuel 31, we're told that badly wounded by archers, Saul fell on his sword. And an Amalekite is not mentioned anywhere. You see, what's more likely to have happened is that this Amalekite stumbled across Saul's crown and his armlet, perhaps while he was picking through the battlefield looking for loot. And having found it, he saw an opportunity to profit. If he told the right tale and made himself the hero who defeated David's rival, well, then perhaps David would give him a great reward. But it's a serious miscalculation because David does not respond 
like the kings of the nations. David demonstrates that he is the Lord's man. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. You see, at this point, the reader, we as the reader, are not meant to rejoice in the death of Saul. We're meant to marvel at the goodness of David. Because here he honors the death of the Lord's anointed. He honors the death of the Lord's Christ. Remember that the Lord's anointed means Messiah or Christ. Well, in this chapter, we're not pointed to any of Saul's failings, but we are told twice he is the Lord's anointed. A Christ figure has died. It's not that everything about Saul connects directly with Jesus. But there does seem to be an echo here which highlights the contrast between this Amalekite who seeks to gain from the defeat and the death of the Lord's Christ. Think Judas and 30 pieces of silver. And then another who honors it. Perhaps think Mary who poured out 300 denarii of pure nard to honor Jesus before his death. You see, here is a picture of David, and he is demonstrating he is the Lord's man. He is not grasping for power. He honors the Lord's anointed. Twice in the final chapters of 1 Samuel, he had opportunity to kill Saul, to grasp the throne, and he said, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And here with the kingdom dangling before his eyes, he's humble before the Lord, just like he had been before. I seek not my own will, said Jesus, but the will of him who sent me. And David does the Lord's will. And that includes acting in righteous judgment. Verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. These do seem quite shocking verses. Perhaps we were shocked by them when they were read out. But these are verses that assure us of David's righteousness. In verse 13, he asks a vital question, where do you come from? And the Amalekite's response is significant. I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. See, he's an Amalekite, but David's not simply dealing with an enemy. He's dealing with the son of a sojourner. That's someone who is the son of a man who's come into the people of Israel, who's attached himself to the Lord's people and come under their law. And so when David asks, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand against the Lord's anointed? Well, it's a question that condemns the man. He should know. And here is David delivering righteous judgment. A sketch, if you like, of Jesus Christ the righteous who will bring perfect justice when he comes in judgment. An assurance that we can trust our king with any injustice, knowing that he is righteous. And a warning that to persist in scorning his death will be to face his judgment. And here we catch a glimpse of the king, a king who is full of honor and humility and righteousness, 
a glimpse of our true King Jesus and a glimpse of our King who leads his people by his word. Verse 17, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. With a song at either end in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, well, here at the center we find this hinge and another song, David's Lament for Saul and Jonathan. The author Dale Ralph Davis suggests that the lament form of the Bible assumes that our grief is deep and ongoing. And he describes lament as a formal expression of grief or distress, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. Different from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts, such that we see in verse 11 and 12. But no less sorrowful and no less sincere. And Davis goes on to observe that here and in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture, well, laments provide words and models for us to express our grief, which we can bring to the Lord. As I've been thinking about this lamentation in preparation, well, it's been instructive to me. And I think we see two things. First, we observe David's grief and his words, which teach us a little more about living with grief. And yet, as we look at David lead his people with these words, well, we also see a picture of God's king, who by his word leads his people through all circumstances to the fullness of his kingdom. And so verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. The phrase, how the mighty have fallen, frames the whole lament. We see it again in verse 25, and it concludes in verse 27. Saul and Jonathan are described as the glory of Israel, the nation's weapons of war, men used by the Lord to protect and to save. And so much is David's desire to honor them that, well, he calls out against any gloating by the enemies. And he even calls Mount Gilboa itself, where Saul had fallen, to mourn. See that in verse 20. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, no fields or offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. This is a time for mourning, David says to his people. And which becomes a time for remembrance. Verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. These words are no politically correct whitewash of Saul's faults. David knew Saul wasn't perfect. But this is a time to remember and to give thanks for all that was good. And there was much good to give thanks for in Saul and Jonathan. They courageously defended Israel many times. They fought side by side, Jonathan never departing from his father. And so David remembers the good and then gives voice to the pain of separation. 
First for the nation, verse 24, your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. And then with what seems to be a personal refrain, verse 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. It is utterly to miss the point to suggest that David's language here speaks of any sexual relationship between himself and Jonathan. In speaking of Jonathan's love for him, David is speaking of the loyal covenant friendship Jonathan pledged to him as God's king. Indeed, the loyal love Jonathan had for David gives just a glimpse of the kind of love that actually only the Christian person knows. A love for our King Jesus which as we consider him grows greater and stronger than any other bond of human love, even that of husband and wife. The bond of love between Jesus and his people can never be broken. But David and Jonathan, part of this pen picture of that, and Jonathan is gone, and David speaks of his distress. Dale Ralph Davis again remarks that whilst we cannot necessarily enter directly into the distress of the affliction of a brother or sister, as we love one another, we do to some degree enter into each other's sadness. And he observes that rightly this will drive us to pray for them that the Lord might uphold them by his sustaining grace. And as we stand back and look at this lament as a whole, well, we actually see a remarkable picture of the Lord's care for his people because here is God's king and he's speaking words to his people and they are words for his people that will lead them through tragedy and guide them onwards until the fullness of his kingdom comes David taught this to the people of Judah because he was their king and his word helped them respond rightly to Saul's death and prepared them for his new kingdom And even those words about Jonathan work towards this. As David highlights Jonathan's love and loyalty for him, it's not only expressing his personal loss, but it holds up Jonathan as the model for his people to follow, that they too might pledge allegiance to David with loyalty. And so here is a picture of our king, God's king who speaks A picture of the Lord Jesus who leads his people through all circumstances with his all-sufficient word. And Jesus does this for his people today. As we listen to his word, we find he speaks to us in sorrow. He walks with us through sadness. He leads us through trials. In all circumstances, he is faithful and unfailing and good, leading us towards a day when the fullness of his kingdom will come and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes how good it is to have a good leader and this is what our king is like the worthy king and also the exalted king this is our second point from time to time in this series we will need to accelerate through some sections of narrative we're going to do that now and accelerate through chapters two through four And then we'll be able to slow up again next week in chapters 5 and 6. And in chapters 2, 3 and 4, we chart the history of the transfer of the kingdom from the house of Saul to the throne of David. And what stands out again is David's humility. At no point does he grasp for power. 
he behaves exactly as we want to see the Lord's anointed behave. And so chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there. To go up is, is to go up for coronation. Think of King Charles III going up from the palace to the abbey and then up the aisle to the throne. But David won't grasp for it. He will wait for the Lord. Shall I go up? And when the Lord says, go up, he goes. And verse 4, the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. But at this point, David is acknowledged king over Judah only. And how easy it could have been for him to bring his thumb down on Saul's followers, a bit like a big man who's won a coup. But instead, verse 5, the second half of verse 4, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. The men of Jabesh-Gilead had risked their lives to go and rescue Saul's body from Philistines and bury it. And rather than squash a potential rival faction, well, David promises to do good to them. In fact, the words loyalty and steadfast love, they're the same word that's used right through the Old Testament to speak of God's promise-keeping, unfailing commitment to his people. Those who honour the death of Lord's, the Lord's anointed will know the security of his steadfast love and the assurance that he will do good to them. And so David does good to the men of Jabesh-Kiliad. But he does call them to himself. Did you notice that in verse 7? Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me, me king over them. The message is clear. David says, I am the king. It may be that you're here this morning and as we examine this pen portrait of God's king, a picture fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, well, you're attracted to what you see, you like it. Well, verse 7 reminds us that he is a king who rightly demands our allegiance. If you're not sure what you make of Jesus, well, can I encourage you to keep listening to 2 Samuel? Read about him in one of the gospel accounts. Join one of the Christianity Explore courses beginning next week to examine the evidence. Because Jesus is the leader the world needs and he is utterly good. But he's not a take it or leave it kind of leader and he's not an optional extra. And to refuse him is to stand as his enemy. And so that's why verse 8 really jolts. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishpreseth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and the Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Abner, the son of Ner, was Saul's uncle, also his general. And unlike the men of Jabesh-Gilead, well, he takes Ishbeseth, Saul's son, and sets him up as a rival king. And what follows is a story of opposition and intrigue, of civil war, revenge, and really just a whole mess of human politics. And yet through it all, David remains humble and he depends on the Lord 
He lets the Lord fight for him, as God's king should. And in fact, despite opposition, and even by the means of the actions of his opponents, the Lord works to establish him as king over Israel. It's got real echoes of what Paul, uh, what the apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 4, when he recalls God's sovereign hand as Jesus was exalted. Peter says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so in chapter 2 here, Abner and David's commander Joab, well, they turn up with armies. They go to the pool of Gibeon. It's like they're beginning negotiations. But the negotiations, well, they descend into civil war and hundreds die. And then in the midst of it, Joab's brother Asael pursues Abner. Asael is fast, a sprint team shoo-in. And he won't give up. But Abner is a grisly battle-hardened veteran. He knows what's going to happen. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 22. Abner said again to Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But Asael wants to grasp the kingdom. He wants to grasp the kingdom for David, but he wants glory himself. And the result is tragic. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And it's a scene of human opposition to God's king, Abner and Ishbosheth, and human efforts to establish the kingdom by force, Joab and Abner and Asael. And it's chaotic, and it's a mess. And yet the narrator is careful to show that David does not incite these events. Instead, he waits on the Lord, and the Lord removes his opponents and establishes his throne. We just see this in chapter 3, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers and to his friends and have i not given you into the hand and have not given you into the hand of david and yet you charge me today with a false concerning a woman god do so to abner and more also if i do not accomplish for david what the lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of saul and set up the throne of david over israel and over judah from dan to beersheba whether or not Abner did what Ishbosheth accused him of is hard to say, but what we find here is Saul's house imploding. Abner's ambition and Ishbosheth's insecurities lead to the handover of Israel to David. And the mess of human intrigue continues. Joab then murders Abner in revenge for the death of his brother Asael. And soon afterwards, some men appear before David, having killed Ishbosheth. And in both cases, David's response shows he's innocent of their blood. It was not his instruction. As he did for Saul, he mourns for Abner. He composes a lament for him. And the people see it. Our key verse, 3 verse 36, all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them. And every, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. 
So all the people and all Israel understood that day it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And in the encounter that follows in chapter 4 that echoes really the Amalekite coming in chapter 1, well, David acts again in righteous judgment towards the men who murder Ishbosheth. And so we see again this picture of God's true king, one who is worthy, humble, righteous, and the Lord exalts him. By chapter 5, verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant before them at Hebron, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. In Abner and Asael and Ishbosheth and Joab, well, we see shadows of Herod and Pilate, the chief priests and the scribes. But we also see sketches of the opponents of God's king through all the ages who line up against the Lord Jesus or to seek his kingdom by force. And despite it all, Jesus' kingdom will be established in fullness for eternity. And however much opponents seek to stop it, in God's hands they will only serve his rise. And so we return to chapter 3, verse 36. All the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything the king did pleased all the people. How good it is to have a good leader. In the Lord Jesus, we have a worthy king who leads us by his good word. And we have a worthy king whose kingdom will be established. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who deserves our full allegiance. Thank you that he is truly humble, righteous, and good. Thank you for the assurance that he lovingly leads each one of us each day in all circumstances by his sufficient word. And thank you that his kingdom will be established forever. We thank you for Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen.